Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's guest is Eric Barker. He's the author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. This was my favorite nonfiction book of 2017. Eric is a former Hollywood scriptwriter turned MBA student and graduate who now writes a column in Time Magazine that takes a science-based approach to success and happiness. And it turns out most of what you know about success and happiness, especially at work, is wrong. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric, and I'll see you at the end to wrap things up. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hi, everybody. I'm really pleased to welcome an awesome guest today. He's my friend and author, Eric Barker. Eric, how are you doing? Pretty good, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Well, as we kick off the podcast, why don't you tell everybody where you're talking to us from today? Where are you located? Uh, Los Angeles, California. Very nice. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. So we are on opposite sides of the country, and I would imagine opposite sides of the political perspective in our respective neighborhoods, if that makes sense. Uh, Maybe. Probably. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm so excited to talk to you today because this podcast is based on the premise that work is broken. I think everybody in America feels that way, and nobody has fought me on that yet. And I wonder if you agree that work is broken, and if you do, why or why not? Uh, I I would disagree. Uh, I I don't think work is broken. I th- I think I think managing people, organizing people to accomplish things is a perennial challenge. So I I don't think. I don't think it's broken because I don't think it was ever fixed. I think it's it's an ongoing issue, and as as the world changes, as technology changes, as as our relative lives and situations change, there's always going to be problems. That it's a it's an ongoing, you know, evolving process. Uh, so I think there are certainly unique difficulties we're dealing with, you know, in the early 21st century. But I think there'll be new problems later, and it's just a matter of, you know, it's like I said, it's it's like evolution. It's just gonna. I think there's gonna keep on being new challenges. We'll adapt to them, and there'll be new challenges. I love it. You didn't pick a fight with me, but you picked like a pragmatic approach to work. So that's probably indicative of how this conversation is going to go, right? (laughs) Well, let's talk about your book because I loved it. It was one of my favorite books last year, and it's called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong. All right. So I love that title as a contrarian. That appeals to me. So what are some of the common misconceptions of success at work and what's accurate. I I mean one thing I I definitely think is uh, a lot of people feel like as long as I work hard, you know, everything everything will be fine. You know, I'll, I'll, as long as I work hard, you know, I'll I'll be CEO and make a zillion dollars and be and be insanely happy. And and I mean, and there's tons of research that shows that that's not the case. That you know that uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer at Stanford has has kind of you know led a lot of the charge in terms of this where. Uh, basically, I think he paraphrasing. I think he sums it up as saying, uh, you know, if you if you work really hard, uh, you know, if if you work you can work really hard, your boss might not like you, or your boss might like you, you might not work very hard. It's like, well, 
you know, if your if your boss likes you, the, the the data shows that the quality of your work doesn't matter much. And if your boss doesn't like you, the quality of your work won't save you. So the yeah, that you know, is depressing, so much... Eric. Oh my god. <laughs> so so you know, in the end, we have to realize that every level of management has uh, has a, uh, a sometimes significant amount of discretion. You know, the the the, the vice the senior vice president isn't really going to look over the shoulder, except in a rare circumstance uh, of the vice president or the director. They're going to say, "Should we promote that person or not?" And the per and there's going to be a yes, there's going to be a no, and the senior vice president is going to say, "Fine, go ahead." So if your boss doesn't like you, you know, it's 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 like the the data might cleanly show, "Hey, you deserve it," but guess what? The data's not going to get looked at. It's going to be at the discretion of the filter, and the filter is your boss. So, you know, that's really relevant. And, it, and it's saddening, but just because it's sad doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, as I was reading through your book, I was taken by how many stories you have about high level of performance throughout the military and how that correlates to the working world. So can you think of any stories from your book that really articulate some of the common misconceptions of success at work or maybe some of the pathways that we can be more successful in our organizations? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to, to look at, to first look at the the company you're you're going into, you know, is really really critical because uh, as uh, Bob Sutton, who's a professor at uh, Stanford Graduate School of Business, he tells every one of his MBA students uh, before they before they leave his class, and he's been at Stanford, I believe, for for 20, 30 years. He says to them, he's like, when you're interviewing a, interviewing at a company, look around. Uh, he's like, and look at the people who work there because you're going to become like them. They're not going to become like you. And if, oh, and if it doesn't work, you can't do it because we, we always like to talk about peer pressure when it comes to teenagers. But the truth is that peer pressure affects us our entire lives. Uh, you know, we, we, we kind of fool ourselves that we're always in charge and that context doesn't influence our decisions. You know, but that's that's ridiculous. You know, context. If, if we've learned anything from the past few decades of social psychology, it's been that, that, you know, context affects our decisions enormously. And the most insidious thing about it is we're usually not cognizant of it. And so to think about, you know, what is this organization, if you're a very altruistic, kind, giving person, and you're going to a vicious, cutthroat, taker-infested company, um, you know, there, there, there isn't any advice uh, in terms of day-to-day -day tactics. You know, you're in the wrong place. Uh, and, you know, so the, the, I think to look at it first, big picture, uh, is what's really critical. And, and that's what... I mean, the thrust of my book is that, that that alignment, you know, between your skills, your signature strengths, your intensifiers, and the context you put yourself in, that's really the most powerful thing in terms of success versus like little minor day-to-day -day tactics. Yeah, I absolutely hear you. And one of the things that um, spoke loud and clearly to me with your book is that employees would do better for themselves if they had a sense of agency and they actually felt like they could make choices or they actually exercised a choice. But I think, Eric, what happens so often in the working world is that we find ourselves in these situations that really demonstrate learned helplessness, right? So we go to work, we're in a difficult situation, and we become almost victims of our own circumstances. And I wonder if you've observed that in the working world, and if you have any lessons from your book on how to pull, our, or just even from your research in general, on how to pull ourselves up from that learned helplessness and start to take a little bit more control of our lives. I, I mean, 
you know, the first, the first and first and foremost, what people need to do is, is free up time and energy. Because if, if you don't have the time to be able to, to really think about this, to, to, you know, to correct your behavior to anything, most people are, are simply doing too much, uh, or they're not, uh, they're not investigating efficiencies enough in terms of that. So the first thing I would, I would talk to people about is just, is just being more productive with your time. And the first step to being more productive with your time is doing the very, very sad, depressing thing of tracking where your time is going. And, uh, and believe me, nothing, <laughs> oh, nothing man, that is depressing. Yeah. Nothing will depress you more. Uh, we, we all, we all love the illusion that we are insanely productive. And, uh, and the first thing is to, to track your time. To, to look at it, you know, for a week or so and just take an Excel spreadsheet and every hour, what did you do? And, you know, first and foremost, you're going to find out you're wasting a lot of time, no matter what you think you're doing. Uh, and then past that, you're also going to realize that your, your priorities are not in order. Sometimes, sometimes you're doing things that are not mission critical and, and you're saying, oh, I don't have time where the truth is you're doing priority number 17 when you could be working harder on priority number one or two. Uh, and then the third thing, which is really valuable is you'll start to see hot spots. You'll start to see, wow, you know, I never thought of myself as a morning person, but the truth is I accomplish 70% of the things that matter for the day, uh, between the hours of nine and 11. And then I'll, and you realize, Oh my God, I get nothing done, you know, between three and 5 PM. And then you can start to utilize those. You can start to say, I am, you know, I will do my damnedest to make sure that I do not have any meetings or, or phone calls or busy work between nine and 11. And I'll do my best to schedule those between three and five, because I know when I get stuff done, I know when I don't get stuff done. And once you really get a handle on what helps you, you specifically tailored, uh, be productive, you can free up time. Once you can free up time, now all of a sudden you have the bandwidth to try and make you know, bigger solutions to, to any kind of major problems you're dealing with. Yeah, I love where you're going with this because where you're going with this is really true self-awareness, knowledge of oneself. And I have this working theory that if we want to fix work, we really need to start with fixing ourselves. And so I hear you where we start is we really understand where we're spending our time, where we're putting our energy. And I think you've got several examples of success in your book that show us how to have the most significant and positive impact on our lives. So, you know, I like when you talk about volunteering, Eric. So can you tell us a little bit more about how volunteering could change our lives? I mean, volunteering consistently shows, you know, that it makes, it makes people happier. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're doing good for others. You're benefiting others. There's some really interesting research by Timothy Wilson at UVA uh, that shows people who are depressed, uh, they, they get caught in a loop where they don't believe that they're living a worthwhile life. They don't believe that they're doing good and, and just, you know, and it becomes almost like having a political or religious debate where you're, you're just not going to change this person's mind. And the best way, uh, it seems, to change their mind is to stop trying to change their mind, is to get them to behave differently. That if somebody goes out and volunteers uh, for a few hours a week, now all of a sudden it's really hard for this person to say, I don't contribute. I'm not living a worthwhile life. I'm not a good person. And the more you stack up these things that people do, all of a sudden 
their, their brain begins to rationalize uh, their behavior and, and they start to feel better. They start to feel like a better person because frankly, they are. And, you know, that's where it, it really becomes critical. I mean, volunteering is, you know, volunteering is a, a great thing. Um, the, the only thing, again, is that I, I think first is that, you know, people, I think that productivity step is always needs to be first uh, because uh, otherwise I, I'm hesitant to, add, to tell very busy people to add more stuff to their plate before they've freed up but, any time. But wait a second, because one of the okay. things I read in your book is that you don't need to volunteer 50 hours a week in order to gain a benefit from it. What is it? Only two hours, right? And well, you start well, to feel the net effect, the positive effect of going out into your community and breaking that conversation in your brain. Did I read that correctly? Well, 50, 50 hours, uh, 50 hours a year. So two hours. So, yeah, so it depends. Yeah, yeah. You can do like an hour, you can do an hour a week. No, you can, you can definitely get, you can definitely get benefits from that. There's, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, the individual can, can be much happier and feel better about themselves from volunteering. I love it. Well, anything to break up the cycle of learned helplessness and this negative message that we send to ourselves about our identities and work when we're in the throes of chaos and dysfunction. So Eric, after the break, you and I are going to talk about more common misconceptions at work. We're also going to talk about the real definition of happiness as if that exists, right? And what it takes to be successful at your job. So hang tight and everybody, we'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody, you know, I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying. I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Welcome back. I'm here with Eric Barker, author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. Eric, are you ready for round two? Let's go. All right. Well, I think many workers confuse happiness and success. And in my mind, you know, they're related, but a little different. So I wonder what you think about that. And what does it take to be both happy and successful at work? And is that unrealistic? I don't, I don't think it's at all unrealistic. I, I think that kind of like you're saying, I think the, the Venn diagram definitely uh, overlaps, but you know, there's, there's some, there's some tricky challenges in there. Like when I talk about in the book, I say kind of the definition of, of success is when you take is finding the alignment between your signature strengths, the things you're uniquely good at and an environment that rewards those. And that's, and that does promote happiness. If you look at, there's research by Gallup, that the more time people spend doing things they're good at, the happier they are, the more productive they are, the more they feel respected, just all kinds of happiness metrics uh, go up. You know, on the flip side, we all know the dangers of, of overwork, you know, so it's, it's you know, just, just, just doing a job that makes you happy uh, isn't necessarily going to improve your health or your relationships. In fact, it can have negative impacts on your health and relationships. So in terms of happiness, happiness is a much more global uh, issue for an individual versus success is largely work focused. And I think, 
I think the, the key there is thinking about how success at work doesn't, you know, it contributes to happiness in life, but it doesn't get in the way of it. And what some of the research found in terms of people who had found like work-life balance, who had a well-rounded uh, existence is the, the issue became that they, those people didn't have a single metric. It wasn't like money or just being happy. Uh, what the research showed was they actually had four metrics. They looked at happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy. Happiness is, you know, are you happy or enjoying what you're doing? Achievement is, yeah, you get the promotion, making the money. Significance is how are you having a positive impact on the people around you? And legacy is, do you feel in some, some way that you're, you're contributing to the greater good of the world? And when people looked at their calendars and kind of like put put the different events on their calendar and said, which bucket does this fit in? You can kind of start to see, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really doing great on happiness, not doing so good on achievement, or I'm doing fantastic on achievement, and that's providing a great benefit to my friends, uh, but I'm not really happy. And then you can start to shift hours, shift time and energy investments to get a better balance between those four to find something that works for you. And I think that sort of like those four metrics can help people achieve a balance between success at work and, and happiness in their life overall. You know, one of the things that I'm struck by when I read your book and when I read your um, column in Time Magazine is that you often talk about people who are successful in happiness having certain basic uh, things that they do on a regular basis. And one of the things that I believe comes up quite often is mindfulness and meditation. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of mindfulness uh, as it relates to just being uh, happier individuals or happier human beings or even happier workers. I mean, are you practicing mindfulness? Is this something you recommend to everybody? Because I do, if I'm if I'm correct, see it in your writing quite a bit. Yeah, I I mean, I I I do. I I meditate every day, and I'm a big believer in in mindfulness. Uh, I think I think it's one of those things that it's it's become very popular and i think most people you know don't know you know uh, how it contributes and i think it's because again that context issue that our context is so influential on our behavior and on our choices and that very often our decisions are reactive you know we're not thoughtfully making decisions we're reacting to whatever stimulus is is upon us and that doesn't always in fact very rarely leads to optimal results and, you know, meditation, mindfulness can help us kind of create a gap there where we actually take things, you know, calmly look at them, consider them, as opposed to just giving our knee-jerk responses, which are usually very short-term and not very long-term uh, successful. So, I mean, I definitely recommend, uh, you know, meditation and, and, and mindfulness. It's, it's just tricky because it, it takes time. You know, and it's something you have to be very consistent about, uh, you know, much like, I mean, the, the, the analogy to exercise for the mind is, is you know, is, is a pretty good one. Uh, but I think uh, definitely people would benefit from it. Well, you know, when I think about mindfulness and when I think about happiness, there are two schools of thought, right? There's the science-based approach where happiness, mindfulness, success all um, comes from a research-based, informed way of speaking. And then we've got people like, Tony Robbins and Lifehacker and Ariana Huffington, right, who bring this woo-woo to the conversation around 
uh, meditation, mindfulness, happiness, success. And I just wonder uh, what you have to say about the culture of self-help and motivational speakers that are out there, because my main competition right now isn't some sensible former HR lady who's running a podcast like me talking about work. My competition is every goddamn motivational speaker out there who thinks that they can inspire someone to change by whispering a few words in their ears. So can we, first of all, can we blame Tony Robbins for some of what's going on right now? And also, do you, do you observe that when you talk about work? Do you see people really struggling with understanding uh, the difference between like self-help and true optimal performance? Does that even make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, hey, my my blog, my book are both dedicated to to looking at the science and looking at the research, and I'm I'm very skeptical of these things. But but uh, but but allow me to be uh, far more cynical than you and say wait, wait, that, I'm not I'm not <laughs> sure that's possible. But go ahead, I, give it a try. <laughs> uh, you know, there's there's that old saying that you know people get the leaders they deserve. Yeah, uh, and I mean, people want a magic pill. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I, people want a magic pill. They want a quick fix. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I tried in my, in my book, you know, with the, with the structure of my book to give both sides, you know, here, let's look at the argument. Let's look at both sides. Let's look at the research on both sides. Let's see why this is confusing, why the answers aren't obvious, uh, and, and to, to contribute a level of nuance. And, and, uh, and while the, the Amazon reviews on my book have been largely good, there's certainly some people who are quite angry that they just wanted you know, hey, do X and everything will be great. <laughs> and, and that's not how life works. No. And, you know, and so I, I think the, there was a fantastic uh, a Reddit, uh, Reddit asked me anything with an anonymous McDonald's executive one time. And uh, one of the questions was, why doesn't McDonald's serve more healthy meals? Why doesn't it serve more healthy? You're contributing to, and the executive just unloaded and basically said, we've tried. <laughs> People <Yeah>. don't <laughs> buy it. They want French fries and ice cream. And you can, you can offer them all the kale they want. They're going to buy French fries and ice cream. Oh, so, man. Agree. So I, agree. I, I, so I, I, I'm not going to point the finger, uh, you know, at it when I realize that, you know, most, most people, they don't, they, or they're intimidated by the answers or it's going to keep them up at night. Or, I mean, I understand, you know, why, uh, people look for, for quick, for quick, specious, smart sounding answers that are inevitably wrong. But I, I don't think, you know, the, the first finger to point is that, is that any of the, the self-help gurus, uh, I think people need to say, Hey, if, if this problem was so easy, uh, it would have already been solved. And, and, and sometimes, and sometimes the answers are simple, um, you know, but they're not easy to execute. Sometimes the, the answers they're, they're not complex. You know I mean? Like I, I think, you know, when it comes to like, you know, dieting and exercise, I mean, you know, it's like, the answers aren't that hard, you know, to understand. They're hard to execute and do day to day. So I, I, I think we need to resist our impulse to always look for the magic pill and the quick fix. Yeah, but I don't want to resist my impulse to blame people like Tony Robbins because I think something is going on, and I don't mean to pick on him, but something's going on in our society and specifically at work where uh, I think we're looking for answers because we're lonely and disconnected. And I see a lot of, especially based on the data around employee experience and employee engagement, there's a lot of really 
isolated individuals in the workforce. And I love your stories where you talk about the importance of relationships and connectivity and why having friends is so important, but also hard to do after a certain age. So can you talk about the importance of relationships uh, at work and in life? I mean, in life, the, 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 the answer is very simple. And that is that, you know, basically the rela- other, other than your genetics, uh, the relationships are, you know, the number one contributor to your happiness, uh, you know, by far, you know, the yeah, research other, it, huh? other, than your, other than your genetics, it's the largest contributor, uh, you know, to your happiness. And it's, and it's really critical. Um, you know, the, the, again, kind of the issue of, like I said, of, of like work, work always being a perennial challenge. Uh, you know, we, we have so many technology and the modern world have given us so many fantastic options in terms of, you know, uh, you know, people can work from home, people, you know, the ability, speed of communication, you know, the ability to, 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 to get things, you know, fashioned and created and shipped so quickly, you know, these didn't exist before. They're fantastic. On the flip side, you know, in some ways we are as disconnected, uh, as ever, you know, and, uh, it's, it's a very tricky balance, but we do need to think very much about these, these relationships. There's research showing that, you know, having friends at work, you know, is huge. You know, it makes a big difference in terms of how can I, if people have one close friend at work or two close friends at work, it makes such a difference in terms of their happiness and their productivity. And by the same token, uh, to take, to take less of a negative spin on the employee boss relationship, uh, people who get along with their bosses have a much, you know, much, much better time of it. They're more likely to be successful. They enjoy their work more. And beyond that, you know the research. The research does agree with the with the traditional maxims, which is that you know people generally don't leave bad companies; they leave bad bosses. You know, so that relationship is is really critical. So, I mean, if we if we're going to invest in anything, you know, investing in relationships can really make an enormous difference. Um, you know, it's it like I said, it's number one. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, listen, Eric, I have one final question. And, you know, you're a book nerd like I am, right? You have an undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania, but you went back and got your MBA from Boston College, but you also have an MFA from UCLA, right? So the current thinking is that a humanities degree is useless and it will often kill a career. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but I wonder what you think about that and what advice you have for listeners of this podcast who's kids want to go to these expensive colleges, follow their dreams, major in English and theater. Is that a waste? Is it worth the money? I mean, that's an, that's, that's an excellent question because, you know, especially now with the top schools, uh, you know, the prices are just astronomical. Uh, so, I mean, is it a waste of money? No, it's like, if you can make a career out of it, it's, it's certainly not a waste of money, but I think that's the part where, you know, yeah. Is there a future in, in a humanities degree? Is there a future for someone like me who graduated with a degree in English and no math skills? <laughs> I, I mean, c- certainly there is. I don't, I don't, you know, the, the world is never going to be, uh, you know, uh, all, all, all pre-med, pre-law and, and business students. Well, thank uh, God. But, but, yeah. You know, but on the flip side, you know, it's like if you look, especially at the PhD crush, where you know, it's like where there's some the the, the universities are graduating so many people with PhDs, and there are not nearly, you know, enough positions uh, for these people. I, I I think you know, there's there's a gap missing there in terms of you know, most students and they're young, you know, aren't thinking about the practical realities. Not that that means they need to change their major, 
but there's an utter disconnect between being at college and being in the working world. And, you know, somebody can get a degree in art and become a very successful freelance, uh, you know, uh, uh, graphic designer and do their, the art they're passionate about as well. There are ways to do it, but currently there is no point in the system designated for showing students how to navigate from a, cha a, a, a career challenged humanities degree to a practical reality because, you know, the issue is, you, you, the issue is you have to have skills somebody's going to pay you for. You don't have to go to law school. You don't have to go to medical school. But in the end, unless you're going to live with mom and dad, you need to have skills that somebody's going to pay you for. So let me ask you something. What did your MBA yeah. do for you? Like, why did you decide to go back and get your MBA? Oh, because I, I was undergoing through a major transition. I was, I was, I did 10 years in Hollywood as a screenwriter. Uh, and that, and, and for, for feature films, it's 100% freelance. There are no staff positions for those jobs. So you are con no matter, you know, you know, no matter, well, within reason, no matter how much money you're making, you're always thinking, okay, when's the next job? Because you don't, you don't know. It's not a guarantee. So, you know, after a decade of this, hey, I had very high, big highs, big lows, but did, did I really want to live the rest of my life like that? You know, it was, it was tricky. And the trickiest thing certainly was, was that I was not at either extreme. I was a working screenwriter. If you, if you, if you can't sell a screenplay to save your life, the answer's easy. If you're making millions of dollars <laughs> right. and winning Oscars, the answer's easy. If you're in the middle and you can work consistently, but you, there's still this, this unease, that's where it's pro it's a problem. So no, so I did go back to to you know to get to get an MBA, and uh, that was after the MFA, and it was you know and it, it was very valuable. Uh, I only ended up working even when I did work in corporate jobs. Uh, I was at like video game studios, which are you know the least corporate of corporate jobs. Uh, <laughs> right. But but then you know but then subsequently I did that. But I've got to say you know you know to 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 its credit. Uh, you know, learning the marketing skills definitely helped me expand my blog and definitely uh, helped me in terms of launch for the book. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't go back and change my undergraduate uh, major. I, I don't wish I majored in business earlier. Um, you know, in the end, I did end up, you know, as a writer pursuing my writing, but it's a very tricky challenge. And now with the costs of college, uh, you know, I, I understand why parents are concerned. You know, one of the top questions I get from, and I have not worked in human resources for over a decade, and yet, you know, I have a big fan base from the world of human resources and recruiting and marketing as well. And the number one question I get, and I get it daily, is should I go back and get my MBA? And so I'm not ever really sure how to answer that because not all MBAs are created equally. That's the other complexity. So an MBA from Wharton is different than an MBA from a uh, for-profit institution. So as we wrap the show up, I wonder if you have any insight or advice to pass along to listeners who may be in the middle of their career. They're not speech writers or screenwriters or doing anything creatively, but they're working in marketing or sales and they're making enough money, but they're wondering if they should go back to school and get that MBA to expand their opportunities. Have, it, have anything to say to those individuals? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there, there is research on this, which first and foremost, uh, the majority of the benefit that you get from an MBA is signaling. 
In other words, uh, it's it's not the, it's not the things you learn. It is the piece of paper and people's recognition of that piece of paper. Not to devalue, not to devalue that signal can be you know very important. And ceteris paribus, all things being equal, you know I, I think most employers would cover their butt and promote the person with the MBA over the person without the yeah, MBA. Yeah, I think but, you're right. But, you know, it's like there are things to take into consideration, which is, you know, how much does the MBA cost? How hard is that going to be to get? How you're, if, or if you go full time, you're, 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 you're giving up two years of employed income. What's that worth? Uh, so there, there, is, there is that issue. Uh, in some arenas, you know, like sales, an MBA doesn't matter at all. Um, you know, if you look at a company and you see that ev- all the if you look at you see that all the senior people have MBAs, that should probably be a clear signal to you that formalized or or, or informally, you're probably going to need it to get there. But the other critical thing I think is exactly what you said, which is, you know, if you can get into a top ten uh, MBA program, that can be a world changer. You know, if you're if it's outside of a top ten, then you know, again, two years, three years part time uh, out of your life, you know, those extra hours, you know, do you know that's going to pay off or are you just reaching for, for, are you just feel like you're drowning and you're reaching for anything, you know, to not go under? I, I think it's something that people need to need to think about if, if you need that to get promoted. And that's quite clear. Uh, if you can get into a top 10 program, that's definitely going to improve your situation, but it's not the answer for everybody, especially considering the, the time and expense. Yeah, absolutely. Great answer. I often tell people to contact their EAP or go to therapy and try to figure out exactly what's driving them to get their MBA. Like figure out that core issue. And then, you know, again, it, uh, what I'm doing is trying to promote self-awareness, right? Figure out what's driving you and then answer your own question that way. And maybe don't ask a blogger what she thinks, but <laughs> that's just me, you know, I don't know. So anyway, well, Eric, it was really great to have you on today's episode. Listen, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, my book is available on Amazon and, uh, and everywhere else that sells books. Uh, the URL to my blog is, is, is quite challenging because it's Japanese. So if people just search for Eric Barker blog, uh, they'll, they'll find it, uh, via Google. But, uh, and I, I'm posting new research into happiness, productivity, negotiation relationships every week. So the best way to keep up with what I'm doing is to, to, to go to my blog and sign up for my weekly newsletter. Yeah, I highly recommend your newsletter. That's how I found you and I really enjoy it. Well, Eric, it's been a real pleasure having you on Let's Fix Work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. You can find Eric Barker at the website, Bake It. Well, you know, it's kind of a complicated website, as he just said. I don't know why he picked the URL, but you can just Google Eric Barker blog and you can find him and connect with him as well as connect with him on LinkedIn. And while you're at it, you can find me at L. Rudiman or Let's Fix Work. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. You could find Audra Casino and Megan Doherty easily on the internet. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star review. If you don't want to leave us a five-star review, just send me some email and give me feedback. I'm at hello at letsfixwork.com. That's all for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? 
Download it for free at lorirudiman.com slash DIYHR.